What's up, everyone? Welcome to Destination Radio. It's me, your boy Dan Evans. I'm joined by the boy Nathan Cush. Doctor Cush. How are you doing, son? Yeah, good. How's things? I'm right, mate. Um, and we are delighted to be joined by James Medway. James is the former chief economist of the New Economics Foundation, and perhaps more famously, was also uh, an advisor to John McDonnell and uh, Jeremy Corbyn. So, thanks very much for joining us, James. Welcome. No problem. Nice to be here. James. Uh, we're, we're Skyping to James, and uh, we can confirm that he sits on a massive pile of money that he's won from playing the stock market. <laughs> yes, no, that, that's literally what I use instead of a chair now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I could just buy a chair, but why do that if you haven't? Yeah, it's, it's just not flaunting enough, is it? I'm, I'm saving up for a Scrooge McDuck-style swimming pool that I can dive into full of money. That'd be class. Um, how are you doing with the lockdown? How are you coping? Everything okay? It, it's, uh, I mean, I'm in a relatively privileged position really i mean i can work from home and um i don't have you know small children i think these are probably the two things that, that really like start to undermine the lockdown experience for those people not you know directly affected by uh, the, the disease or having to work in the front line and um, i mean one of the things so it's a slightly more serious point isn't it but one of the things that's really drummed home is, is the variety of experience in this the, the difference between people who, who can you know work from home mm. potentially it's not actually that bad i mean it's not great not being able to go out or whatever but it's not that bad um people on the front line without you know adequate protection the one that i was absolutely shocked by was, was what's happened to bus drivers in london i think it was one that was really dramatic um and, and you know and that's been the case throughout all of this it's exposed these sort of fundamental uh, differences of experience around class yeah, it's, it's exposed the, it's exposed the class divide in a way that's been kind of unprecedented for a, for a while i think i keep thinking of the um remember the iww you know, the pyramid of the class system and there's all the people underneath holding it up um except you know now that would be largely you know a lot of it would be immigrant workers you know delivery drivers nurses cleaners you know doctors teachers and bus drivers and so on um but yeah it has been defined by class um which hopefully we'll return to throughout the throughout the this episode what what i think is interesting about this crisis james is that it it's it's forced this question. It's forced a lot of people to confront or discuss the question about the economy per se as a thing. And you wrote you wrote an article, you know, called uh, I think the Tribune called the anti-wartime economy, which I thought was excellent. And it's about the crisis as a as a litmus test. You know, what is the economy? Who is the economy for? Because uh, it turns out, you know, we can shut down everything. You know, if we want to, we can. There is enough money to furlough people. Um, and it's exposed, I guess, for a lot of people that the economy isn't something that just floats above us like the weather. It's something that is fundamentally political and within the control of man. Control of man. So I wonder if you could start us off by talking about how you think that's, you know, what's what's cha- what's changed. I think this is fundamental to to the politics um, of it, at least, and 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 the way that probably things will play out over the next few years is the is is this repoliticization of the economy, and and not just repoliticization in the first stage, which is exactly as you say, right? The economy is something that you can change. Right? The government's just decreed that, as you said, loads of it's going to stop, so we stop, and suddenly things are different, mm. and and that obviously opens up the question about well, then you could just do things differently in the future as well, right? It, it's, there's no real, I mean, there are things that you can and can't do. There are physical impossibilities about how we organise ourselves. Uh, and we can we can come on to some of how some of those will change, um, you know, depending on different sort of virus scenarios going into the future. But So that's one part of it. The other bit is, is what we were just talking about, which is, is the repoliticisation, not just the economy in general, but specifically of work 
and that suddenly this has really, really brought home the the necessity of work being performed and of having people to perform that work, right? This is a really big political moment. And that, that necessity that we recognise is not necessarily the same as how we were previously rewarding different kinds of work. For instance, you know, fairly obviously, if you're doing care work, you are almost certainly going to be grossly underpaid and not in a, a very good situation at all. It's, it, actually, it's another one where, you know, it's shockingly inadequate levels of protection given to people. Uh, and the scandal probably, there are several, the scandal is sort of, incompetence i think it might be generous but incompetence that you've seen around what's happened in social care uh, in the last few months i think is one of the things that's it's starting to come up already as, as a real shocker um but it's it's a politicization of work and it's an understanding that work is something performed by people and we can value that work and change how we feel or, or make that work happen if we want to so it's, it's quite that's a big shift and that repoliticization of work is a, is a real it's, it's in a way that hasn't happened in this country for decades i don't think you know, we got used to a situation where mostly if you go out to work, this is a completely apolitical, depoliticised environment. Some, some of those depoliticised spaces in British society are basically workplaces. Right? You can think all sorts of mad stuff. You can rant about it on the internet where you go to work, there is no politics. Right? It's just not talked about. There's no sense of work as a thing that you can alter for most people. You know, most workplaces now do not have a single union member present. Right? It's never mind you, know, you should join a union work, but you should. But most places don't have that. So, so the sort of politicisation of work that used to be there has gone. And this has brought it back in a really, really dramatic fashion. And you can see some of the impacts, I think. The political sense, the general political sense, you see it in polling. You just see it anecdotally, how people talk about how things could change and the, the value that people attach to certain kinds of previously undervalued. I mean, still actually undervalued. We're not paying people enough work. Um, but, but also, I think beyond that, things like the TUC suddenly being invited in by, you know, this this by Rishi Sunak, he's a former Goldman Sachs banker who's the Tory Chancellor of the Exchequer, inviting the TUC to talk about how they're going to implement a furlough scheme. And this is a real, like, reassertion necessity and importance of work, I think. In terms of the furlough, you know, obviously you said you, know, you have to hibernate the, essentially hibernate the economy to save lives. Your perception of how the economy or what the economy is would be to service people's lives, which shouldn't be... <laughs> Shouldn't be a radical view, <laughs> but obviously, as the uh, the attacks on you know Corbyn McDonald showed, it is sadly or was sadly a radical view in the UK. How do you view, or how do you, I guess, yeah, how do you rate the the furlough scheme that Sunak has come up with? Well, it's it's. I mean, starting point. This is it's huge. I mean, it's absolutely enormous, right? What what's happened under this Conservative government? And, and just be clear that like the, the signal's already there. The manifesto they were elected on, everything that Boris Johnson has said since he became Prime Minister. Uh, I was going to say all those years ago, but it was actually like about, what, less than a year ago. Yeah, less summer. than six months. <laughs> God. Um, everything he said since that point was like, this wasn't going to be just more austerity, standard mm. kind of Tories we got used to, right? They were going to spend some money, they were going to spend £100 billion in investment and all this sort of stuff. Um, so that was already there. What they've done now balloons massively beyond that point. I mean, it is the biggest um, economic intervention undertaken by any government in, in Britain's peacetime history, right? Like, oh, really? way, right? But easily. Like, there's nothing that comes close to saying you're going to get all these people and pay 80% of their wages all the way through until like, October. I mean, this is colossal. The rough estimates on this, I think the government now accounts for about 55% of GDP is the, is the figure that floats to mind. So give or take around that. Um, so, so it's a huge intervention. Uh, and broadly speaking, it's worked in the sense that like, there are a lot of people who otherwise would have been laid off and destitute 
because we can talk about this, but the, the shock of this thing is absolutely overwhelming, right, in, in terms of the impact on the economy and therefore the impact and whether people can carry on being employed, uh, whether wages get cut, all that sort of thing. So the government's just stepped in and massively backed all that up. So that's huge. The downsides on it is that it, look, it's, it's not actually been wide enough. There are people falling through gaps. If you're self-employed, um, particularly if you moved into self-employment in the last sort of, 12 yeah. months or so, right, you really ended up in quite a bad place. There are still people. They've upped the level a bit. There are still people being forced onto really inadequate universal credit. Uh, you know, they, they kind of made it better than it was because it was absolutely woeful, but it's still nowhere near good enough. You know, if you're still being pushed onto the sick pay and this sort of thing, it's not it's not good enough. Um, so, so there's lots and lots of people in our you know, increasingly sort of gig economy, zero hours economy that, that are falling through the gaps in this, which is not a good place to be and, and self-employed part of that, especially. It also has this sort of peculiar impact of, of sort of it's spending a very large amount of money to keep things kind of the same at this point in time. Right. You pay a lot of money to basically preserve everything in aspic. Mm-hmm. So sometime at the other end of this, you can kind of unwind it and everything will kind of get back to normal, right? In the heads, initially, I think in the Treasury, it was like, we need a scheme that works like this so we can unwind it and just carry on as if nothing happened. So it's just kind of like crisis management. But also, it's a particular kind of crisis management that that I think is fairly endemic to the British system because it's what's happened in 2008 to to a significant extent. Mm. If you look at the intervention of the banking system, it's huge. Like You nationalise great chunks of RBS and who else, Bradford and Bingley, as was, and, and a few others, were all taken into state ownership. You could have done, at that point in time, almost anything with these things, because you own them. It's a massive crisis. You've got all the political capacity to do this. And what actually happened is you just run RBS and the rest exactly as if they were just a, a commercial bank. Probably worse. If you look mm. at you know, what RBS was doing, the global restructuring group, where they're just basically shaking down small businesses to try and rinse money out of them, right? It's probably behaving worse. They're running a racket, like... It totally really was. Um, so, so it's behaving worse than what a, a private bank would be doing at that point in time. Um, and, and, and this is kind of, the, it's, it's a very treasury way of thinking, which is that you just, you're going to make a big intervention, but you try and devise a way to get out of it as fast as possible with nothing really changing. And the furlough scheme looks a bit like that. Now, the, the problem they're up against is that there is no way out of this without changing things fairly significantly now. Right? We know this, whatever people might want to have thought about uh, COVID-19, perhaps they hope there'll be a, a vaccine that arrives quickly. By the way, if a vaccine does sort of miraculously turn up like next week, things can revert quite rapidly. But I mean, we could easily be in a world where we never have a vaccine and there is no long-lasting immunity to this. So in other words, everything changes forever at this point. We don't, there's huge uncertainties around this. But it's fairly clear we're not going to be getting back to normal anytime soon. And I think the argument from the left, especially, although you can see what the Tories are talking about is that they've got a sense of this as well, is that we don't really want things to go back to just how they were before. right? We have to do something better in the future. And some of the issues that come through this time around the way we undervalue care work, especially um, the damage that we're doing to the environment, the experience for a lot of people, I think, over particularly in cities over the last few weeks, has been suddenly the air quality is massively better because basically we're not driving so much. You know, it, it starts to create this sense that maybe things could be better and different coming out the other side which I think we have to fight for and grab hold of. Yeah, I mean, it is a crisis, and I'm not going to go into this now, but like when one of the criticisms I've got of, of Keir Starmer's approach at the moment is that, you know, during political crises, you can't, you shouldn't be ceding ground to um, the Conservatives. You need to be, like, relentlessly politicising it and saying, like, no, things have to change radically now rather than just sort of almost waiting for things to 
as you said, go back to normal and then start the conversation. The conversation has to be, um, it has to be, everything has to be changing now and the narrative has to be, well, the rhetoric has to be sort of stepped up and you have to demand, demand everything, I guess. Um, how, I mean, obviously it's about the social settlement, but how do you, con- I mean, how do you contrast Sunak's approach with, because um, obviously everyone was saying, ha, look how generous he is, you know, the, the sort of, this will silence all the lefty critics. And then people were pointing to, for example, what Macron's done, um, you know, and the neoliberal like Prince, it, and that is apparently you know more generous than the British announcement. But but, but presumably that's just in line with the existing social social settlement and levels of state intervention in those countries, anyway, is it? Yeah, I mean that's part part of the issue here is if you look at the the furlough announcement, the payments of eighty percent of pay. I mean, it's, it's now been extended a long way, but it's actually yeah. quite similar to what you would get as standard in a lot of Northern European countries anyway. Right? They, they have quite different, much more generous welfare uh, systems yeah. to those recently made unemployed. Um, Norway gets used as an example. The scheme we have is very, very similar in design, I think, to that. But the Norway scheme is actually not that much different to what you were going to have in place anyway. Um, th- I mean, th- there is potentially a sense of possibility here, which is you know, we could have a very different, much better more universal welfare system out the other side of this. And, and I think there's probably, as people are, are have, very large numbers have, or potentially will run into uh, sort of the woeful state of the benefit system and the welfare state in, in Britain, yeah, that, that might start to shift people's perceptions of what you can do around it. Um, I mean, it, it's Rishi Sunak, you know, he, it's, he, he's consistently coming out as one of the most popular politicians in Britain now. And, it, and it's not that surprising if you are just handing out very large amounts of money to people um, and you look, because he does look like he's a bit more on top of it than much of the rest of the government. Because you know, actually they've kind of got some of the economic stuff, certainly from their own point of view. It's, it's worked. Right? They've done about the right thing. It's been under pressure. I mean, the original suggestion for furlough scheme, I think, actually does come from John uh, McDonnell and Labour Party back in the day. It's under pressure from the TUC, but it got to a point where things kind of work. It's dispensing largesse. There's no obvious point at which you're going to make people you know, pay for any of this somewhere down the line. So, of course, he's popular. Unwinding this is, is going to be the real challenge, right? Because that's when you have to do something that isn't going to make you popular. And if you're a politician who doesn't have to do this, you've got a bit of the incentive to not do this. So you can see why he's not too fussed about extending the scheme at this point in time. We'll talk about the tapering off because um, the chat is about August at the moment in, in a sec. I wanted to discuss, you know, the, you, you've, you've talked about how the crisis has exposed certain things, you know, the issue of work in industries and jobs like care being undervalued. To what extent do you think it's exposed or you know the COVID crisis has been has exposed the the state of the UK under austerity. I mean, you've written previously about like you know how the NHS isn't particularly like a high tech beast. And one of the cruel ironies from a leftist perspective is obviously you know you've got columnists who are relentlessly mocking the idea of free free broadband under the Labour manifesto, and now belatedly realising that broadband you know is like a social good. Um, you know the the, the nationalisation of other other infrastructure like transport. Albeit temporarily, I mean, yeah. So I guess in a in a roundabout way, has the crisis exposed? Has austerity made the crisis a lot worse? Probably a rhetorical question. Mm-hmm. Um, and to what extent has it has it illuminated things like you know the need for infrastructure and broadband and investment in other in other sort of almost unglamorous areas of the economy? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's you're absolutely right. It's 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 seriously exposed. Um, just the damage that austerity has done absolutely all over the place. I mean, some of it's been 
partially compensated for. Things like the furlough scheme kind of compensate for, for the problems that otherwise would have been very much exposed mm. around around the welfare state. So that's slightly sort of patched up for now. Um, but the, the really obvious one is what's happened to not just the NHS, but social care. Social care was already in a massive, really horrible, uh, perpetual underfunding crisis and had been for a good long period of time. The government, after a while, sort of switched to sort of defend the NHS at all costs and left social care to go hang. Uh, decision to move, what was it, 15,000 people yeah. out of NHS untested into the wider community, including social care. That's, I mean, it's just unbelievable that that decision was taken um, into a system that's already under severe strain, right? which is why you have uh, such a large number of deaths and infections taking place in the social care system. This is a result of austerity, that lack of preparation. There are other bits. The government keeps trying to turn around. They do it subtly, but they'll probably get more aggressive. Keep trying to blame Public Health England. For you know, oh, it's all public health. It's inadequate. It was all centralised. It was inflexible. This sort of thing. I mean, whatever you've cut over seven hundred million pounds from public health England uh, over the last few years, right? The local public health provision has been wound down and wound down consistently because it's just assumed not to be the, you know, not to be necessary, not to be serious. That sort of thing. Uh, John Ashton, isn't it? Who's talked quite a lot about this? And a number of public health professionals have. So it's every part of the system that's been exposed there. There's also a sort of there's a kind of there's a bigger picture here, which is is that if you take the crisis as a whole, it's revealed something quite important about something like state capacity across the world. Yeah. Like the, the countries have got on top of this. It's not necessarily the richest ones. In fact, the richest countries, if you look, have been some of the worst, worst affected, right? It's been often the poorer countries that have been able to just move rapidly and put in place actually fairly cheap things. In the absence of a vaccine, uh, or you know, any level of immunity or much in the way of knowledge about drugs you might use to treat this or whatever. Like The methods to try and contain something like this are actually pretty crude, which means they're pretty cheap. So yeah. you have a quarantine and ideally you get face masks to everyone, let's say. You know, so in Japan, they, it's a rich country, but they get two face masks distributed to every household, for example. Vietnam is an example where they very rapidly move to impose this. Kerala. Uh, it's state yeah. in India, streets ahead of the rest of the country in terms of its response. I mean, it's really impressive. Didn't it's not a rich place. Like, sorry, didn't um, that place in India only have like four deaths, and one of the deaths was outside the region? Uh, it, it wouldn't. I mean, you can figures sometimes take a pinch of Ominous led state, isn't it? Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, that's right. So, so it's a coalition of sort of leftist parties who've run it and run it since the 1950s, I think. It's uh, uh, so it's distinctive politics there, uh, and also. I mean, in a lot of these places, they've had more recent experience of epidemics, so mm. the preparation was already there. But they brought that state capacity to bear, to bear yeah. on the problem. They mobilised immediately, and as a result, they've had a much better experience. New Zealand, I mean, it's actually a rich country, but it's done this. So, so this is the variation experience. When you have countries that didn't do this, uh, in some cases really willfully, I mean, Sweden, I think, isn't it? it's been an absolute uh, disaster, right? Um, or places where you've been a bit sluggish in response. I mean, here we were going to do a sort of Sweden thing, and then... Fortunately, uh, there was a sort of panic in government and there was a switch into a much harder form of lockdown. Countries that have not had that state capacity, not had that national political leadership, because I think there's a decisive failure around that, uh, have really, really suffered as a result of this. I mean, that's why we are doing so very, very badly uh, out of most of the countries in the world. And there's an economic consequence to this one, I think, which is that if you've had a bad coronavirus experience already you've reacted too late you've had a very high number of deaths it's cost a huge amount of money to try and deal with this because of these things um and it's damaging your economy because you're having to lock down really hard you are going to find it harder to restart like if you just take a pure like 
you know, when can you get growth going again? Either side, whether this is particularly desirable, but take that as a measure. Um, you're going to find it harder to restart. And that means you're going to lag behind everybody else. And when you do try and restart, you're likely as not to try it. You're likely as not to do it too soon. By the way, this is pretty much what's happening here. Run into another crisis and then have to lock back down again and never be able to get to the point where yeah, you yeah. have a sort of, you have a handle on the situation. That's economically damaging. Mm-hmm. And what it says is that there's a potential here looking one, two, three years into the future of a real shift in the balance of economic power in the world. Because it's been the richest states, or some of them, that responded very badly and aren't going to be able to get back to position of some economic strength so rapidly. And it's been some of the poorer states that responded rapidly and are now in a position to be able to do that. I mean, Aditya wrote an article, which I thought was great, and he said, you know, obviously it's a crisis which requires massive state intervention and the people in charge are, on the, you know, in the first instance, they're just ideologically incapable of conceiving of state <laughs> state intervention. But I think what the crisis has also shown is because of austerity, the state's been gutted to the point where, as you said, it, it's it's there's been obviously a litany of failures in yeah. in England, in Wales. The state is inefficient. The state can't run things so it's because it's being cut to the bone. So it has to bring in people like Deloitte and Circo and everyone else to yeah. to actually run infrastructure projects because they just they've just cut the state back so much. So it just so it literally hasn't been capable of of doing the doing the basics. Um, and also, there's you know with neoliberalism has come this like Byzantine you know, diffusion of responsibility and multiple layers of bureaucracy, yeah. which obviously is it exposes the fallacy at the heart of neoliberalism that it's about like stripping back red tape and stuff. It's actually, it, it's adding more, yeah. yeah, it's adding more and more layers of, uh, of bureaucracy when they're not needed. Um, so yeah, I think that is fascinating in terms of the tapering off. Yeah. August has been talked about, and obviously the narrative of austerity is coming back in. There's a bit of a tension here, isn't there? Because as you said, Boris is apparently this, you know, this intervener. There's a, he's part of the wing of the Tory party, which has talked about, you know, bringing back some sort of state intervention. But already there's a, a counter narrative emerging about the need for, you know, relatively brutal austerity, I would imagine. And then obviously... I think so. So come August, as it stands, firms are going to have to start shouldering some of the um, the furlough, which will probably lead to mass redundancies. How do you see? How do you see it going um, in, in in terms of the 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 economic calculations of like of Sunak? I think that I think you should be quite careful about austerity, right? Um, because there are some voices in the Tory party. Uh, and around it that are making some noise about this. But if you look at the, the usual suspects, it's, you know, take the Adam Smith Institute or the Institute of Economic Affairs or these sort of free market right-wing think tanks or um, Alistair Heath edits the Telegraph now, writes his yeah, regular yeah. column. Right? They're, they're all basically saying it would be a bad time to do austerity. Policy exchange, very influential Tory think tank, basically Tory think tank, had a paper out last week saying it would be a mistake to go and do austerity. Now, that doesn't mean that somewhere down the line there'll be an argument about reshaping the state. But my, my strong suspicion here is if, if we get austerity, it won't be like 2010, everything gets cut. Sort of protecting departments, but they're not really right. So everything gets cut and it's a general offensive on everything. Um, it, it's more going to be, I suspect, kind of targeted and selective bits of it and the, within a, a generally accepted frame in which government spending is going to be higher. Or all, all the sort of Tory side, or majority of it now basically accept at least for now, certainly it's accepted by the Treasury that government debt is going to be much higher than it was. That's just going to be accepted. 
So if you're eating 20 dinners, like, that's so high, we have to do austerity now. It's like, yeah, okay, we'll park that. They won't be generous above what they've already done. They will be trying to wind that down, obviously, with the furlough scheme. They may try to not wind the furlough scheme down so much and look for other things to cut elsewhere and do a sort of balancing act around this. But it's going to be, I think, specific bits of austerity. Um, on top of that, it's it looks clear to me, I think, I think it looks clear, um, that the Tories are going to be much more, well, I do think they're going to be much more interventionist. They already have been. They said in the manifesto they're going to be interventionists. Boris Johnson's was describing himself as being a Brexity Hezer, Hez, Michael Heseltine, right? So quite an interventionist version of, of doing sort of Tory economics. Um, there's, they grasp the need to try and restructure British capitalism. They appear, this may take people by surprise, but they appear to be going for a sort of green version of that. They, they sense an opportunity to make this happen, you know, because and, and literally a commercial opportunity as much as anything else, but also it's quite a good propaganda thing. They, they have a, a story about green growth is what we're going to be doing in the future, this sort of stuff. That will require fairly heavy government intervention in various forms, like building big bits of infrastructure, this sort of stuff. Where it's going to get difficult for the left, uh, or at least I say difficult, it's already politically difficult if they're doing that because the story about they're just cutting everything doesn't quite work. Yeah, yeah. Where it gets difficult for the left in the sense you're not just going to support these things and I'd advise you not to necessarily do that anyway, is that I think it's going to be infrastructure spending plus deregulation plus government being quite brutal in, in certain other aspects, basically quite authoritarian in various yeah. bits of the labour market. So you could easily build new railway lines but then insist that trade unions are banned in yeah. railways, right? Or what was the one in the Sunday Times at the weekend was Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings have set up a committee of advisors to strip councils of their planning powers and have government-owned development corporations make planning decisions instead, right? That's a big central government intervention, but it's there to like push through a, a very sort of stripped-down pro-business, pro-business as they see it, uh, intervention on the ground. So, so it's going to be that sort of mix of things, and then chucking stuff like you know what they're trying to do with the contact tracing app and the centralisation of data and the hoo-ha around this, which people should keep an eye on, by the way about what's yeah, happening yeah. to the data that's being produced. This is a great big expansion of the data economy. And with that comes increased surveillance, uh, increased surveillance of people at work. Often, I think looking ahead, this is going to be increasingly around sort of biological surveillance. You know, there's, there's infrared sensors in Amazon warehouses now to check the body temperature and this sort of thing, right? This is a huge expansion of surveillance of data. And this, this contains a real sort of potential, basically authoritarian edge. And that's probably where the arguments are going to start to occur more or as well as the one in austerity that we're familiar with from the last 10 years. It, I mean, one of the things I keep hearing off my mates is, oh, you know, you can't keep just, you can't keep funding everyone to not work yeah. forever. But of course, you know, you, you can, can't you? That's the, that's the point. I mean, they don't have to taper, they don't have to taper off, do they? It's, um, I mean, there is, a, there is a bit where, it's an interesting question because at the moment, government borrowing costs are, the, the lowest in human history. I mean, that, that's what you're looking at. And, and that's not just Britain. This is a sort of general thing. Uh, it's quite an interesting paper. This sort of speculative economic history is always quite fun, but a uh, paper showing interest rates in the last like 600 years. And these are just fallen, 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 fallen for the last 200 or so. There's not much reason to think that will change. And if interest rates are very, very low for government, so low that they actually turned negative for government last week. In other words, people were paying the government with the privilege of lending them money, right? So at that point, there's very, very few restraints on you just going off and spending some money if you want to. But you do run up against the, the sort of harder practical bit, which is that particularly from a sort of 
capitalism point of view, you do actually, th this is a competitive world. There are competitive firms. They, they all compete with each other. They want to generate a return. They want to generate profits. They're owned by shareholders who demand this sort of thing. There's an incentive to try and get work happening. So you have to find a way to make that work happen. Right? Regardless of how much you can potentially borrow money, just pay people to not do this. There's an incentive to try and get there fast. Uh, and particularly, like I said, where if the lockdown has gone badly and it's been expensive, you've got quite an incentive to try and get out of it as soon as possible because you don't want to see market share disappear, for instance. Mm. You want to. And, and this, by the way, is, is one of the things of the crisis where it's, it's been an acceleration of tendencies that have been there since 2008, which is a sort of expansion of the state in the economy that had already been taking place after the 2008 crash, but also the way the state is now acting more strategically in the economy. So in other words, you get suddenly like... You know, talk about intervening to save national champions of various sorts. Uh, proposals being floated to take Rolls-Royce and merge it with British Aerospace and potentially yeah. take equity as well, right? So, so this is I mean, a bit of sort of back to the 70s flavour to this, but, but this is the state intervening to try and protect particular bits of British capital. This is not standard neoliberalism. There's an argument about this, but I think we are, by this point, moving a long way out of neoliberalism, doing so quite rapidly. Do you think then... Um... In the sense you mentioned, um, you know, it's, it's not quite neoliberalism. Do you think there'll be like a kind of uh, a natural progression away from it then? Because obviously with Rishi Sunak's like intervention, that's like almost Keynesian in its, um, well, nature, isn't it? And you know, seeing that even with this crisis, neoliberalism can't really hold up to anything. Do you think it might be on the way out? I think so. I mean, the, the biggie for me, I think, is, is the kind of collapse of the international order of neoliberalism, the way in which that you had, if you, if you take this kind of, not just neoliberalism, it's, it's, it's entangled with globalisation, what we think mm. globalisation is, but if you take the period like 30 years running up to 2008, 1978 to 2008, it's quite a good 30 year period to look at, you have the world economy grows, um, world trade grows faster than the world economy, cross-border financial flows, in other words, the whole flicker switch and your dollars move from one end of the world yeah. to the other, that stuff, right, grows even faster than the world trades. So the world the world becomes increasingly globalised. The economy is much more. The economy is growing, trade's growing faster, financial flows are growing faster than that, right? So everything's much more entangled. After 2008, that's all in reverse. What we see with this crisis is that it's collapsed. World trade has collapsed as never before. Um, the economy's shrunk as well. Financial flows already before this crisis, cross-border financial flows were already down 65%. Right. So, so a lot of the things of globalization were already unwinding. And the bit where you think that neoliberalism, the way in which you run this economy, is starting to unwind is the breakdown of international cooperation on the economy. Right. If you look at, and again, if you, you can sort of look at 2008 and you can see how it's already starting to crumble after that. But if you look at the immediate response to the crisis, there was actually quite a coordinated effort by governments to put in place uh, a plan on how to rescue the world economy by early 2009. Right? This is the series of G20 meetings that coordinate things. It, it falls apart later. It falls apart with the rise of austerity going into 2010 in Britain especially. This time around, no such luck. I mean, what's, what's the actual response to the crisis? On the public health element, uh, the US wants to pull out of the World Health Organization. Right? The one big international body we have, that's done for. There was already a, a mad US-China trade dispute taking place. That's now got rocket boosters on it. International cooperation is falling apart. The neoliberal ideal of a world of sort of multilateral yeah. deals and the free market and everybody's going to be on a sort of level playing field never quite works like that. But, you know, that's the ideal. This, this is decisively, I think, ended. So, so neoliberalism is ending up here at the top in the world economy, in the global economy, and that's turning into consequences for all the different nation states. 
I think the logic of neoliberalism in terms of, you know, public services will still be run by corporations and it'll be authoritarian, but it'll be, yeah, maybe, it'll, well, I don't know what it'll be called, but it'll be a different flavor, a different flavor of... Neo-neoliberalism. Um, well, I mean, just, I mean, Laurie McFarlane has a good article in, in Open Democracy, he talks about authoritarian capitalism. Yeah. Uh, China is a model, which mm. is, you have a big state, it intervenes, and it intervenes on the same side as private capital, and it's quite unpleasant. So. Like the, yeah, like the Andrew Gamble, the original yeah. uh, one, I guess. I was going to ask, before I forget, which is, I guess is one of the things that my mates have all keep, keep asking me, and I just keep saying, I haven't, got, I haven't got a clue. But in terms of the sectors that you think are going to, we'll, we'll get on to the idea of, you know, are we heading for a, a crisis in a sec? But just to pick up on what you said about, you know, the Tories' new strategy, intervention, green capitalism, merging things like Rolls-Royce with... Um, was it BAE or potential things like this? I mean, obviously, you've written a lot about the need for a renewed manufacturing industry and a renewed industrial strategy, uh, reshoring, things like that. What sectors do you think are going to be extremely vulnerable now or, you know, where we're going to see the biggest, uh, you know, layoffs for without sort of, you know, people are going to lose their jobs in? And what areas do you see people being people being safe? Well, I mean, I think we've already seen some of this, which is, I mean, the, the one that's really been absolutely walloped by all of this is uh, air travel. Yeah. So airline industry globally is absolutely done for, right? Because basically people, you know, air travel's collapsed. Uh, and, and there are two things, one of which is if you look ahead, then I, I don't think we, it's not just we don't get back to a point we don't go back to a point before COVID-19, right? This doesn't mm-hmm. happen because we choose not to. We also can't go back to it. Uh, I strongly suspect that once everybody is aware, in particular people making decisions about investments are aware of what you might call kind of pandemic risk, of a risk of like a virus outbreak and the costs it imposed. In general. They, like, yeah, in exactly. If they know that yeah. something like this can happen, whatever yeah. happens with the specific virus we have, yeah. the SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, if this can happen in the future, they'll have to build in security arrangements to try and deal with this, right? So, so it's monitoring of, it's yeah. much more monitoring of people taking flights, it's health checks, it's all, it's all this sort of stuff. That's a cost on businesses. It's going to whack up the cost of flying, whatever happens in the future. Therefore, the airline industry takes a hit. That's the obvious one. Uh, and similarly to that is all the people trying to make stuff for airlines. Uh, so you can see in Wales, it's Airbus, yeah. isn't it? And just next door, it's Rolls-Royce, which we talked about. Um, you know, Packets of peanuts and stuff like that. Sorry? Packets of peanuts. <laughs> Taking a massive hit. Exactly. This is this yeah. is a supply chain. You, you have the airline, the, the lease is usually the, the planes here. The planes have like thousands of different suppliers going in. It's a big complex thing to do. Um, you then have to try and fly the you then try and make money in various ways out of flying the thing. There's fewer flights taking place, fewer people taking flights. This is a massive hit. That's a really Al- obvious one. Al Qaeda like, now is struggling to diversify. Well, yeah, yes, I'm trying. I'm, what post COVID 19 terrorism looks like is probably a subject <laughs> of a you know, more speculative <laughs> conversation, I suppose. Um, uh, there we are. Was it? God, I, I saw something. This is a complete tangent. I saw something about ISIS and banned. Yeah, people like, coming to Britain because it was too dangerous. Too yeah, <laughs> people like fair play. That's a class move. Um, and then I just did, did a BLM tweet the other day as well. They had all these uh, jihadis of different races, and they said, you know, we're all the same in ISIS. So, they, so they're they've had a pretty good. It's woke ISIS. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you see Boko Haram uh, ban plastic bags as well? 
Should they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Following the Welsh government advice, see? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so right. airlines the obvious one. Um, tourism's the other bit. Uh, you could, you know, I think that's like quite done for in lots and lots of different ways. These are sort of the, the obvious parts of it. There are then the slightly less clear, but ones that are bearing down as rapidly is uh, farming and food supply and distribution in general. Right. There is a, a reasonably good. Sorry, what's that? The small matter of food. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, there, is, there is a fairly immediate problem with like, you, it is harder to get people to actually, we're seeing this here, that mm. it's like there's food potentially going rotten because we can't yeah. get people to go pull it out of the ground. Yeah. Uh, but that applies globally. That can turn quite rapidly into food short shortages and, and all sorts of problems uh, somewhere down the line. So agriculture takes a hit, uh, and then the rest of us take a hit potentially if food prices spike. Um, I mean, the one the thing we saw right at the early part of this crisis wasn't a problem of supply. Do you remember when all the supermarkets were going empty? Yeah. And for a brief period, it was like, oh my god, is everyone hoarding toilet paper? Or, yeah. All this mad stuff. It's, it's not really true, right? Most people. Hoarding was actually really quite rare. Most people didn't go mad and try and buy every bag of pasta they could in Tesco's or whatever. But what you see from the figures is that people are buying slightly more of some of the essentials. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you have, as we do have in Britain, particularly for the supermarkets, he's really, on their terms, they appear to be very efficient, just-in-time inventory systems where you like you keep very, very minimal levels of stock in place yeah. in any supermarket any point in time only takes a slight change in demand maybe some slight wobbles on supply and suddenly you run out of like pasta and a whole load of other things and supermarket shelves are empty and that's not from hoarding that's just from a, a small change in demand mm -hmm. that, against this very very carefully calibrated machine uh, that's supposed to like meet a certain kind of demand all the time what we got potentially down the line is actual food shortages because we haven't been able to harvest the stuff properly so that's a that's a big hit there if you're looking at who are the winners from this it's data. I mean, look at what's happening in the US stock, uh, stock market. It, incredibly, it's still rising, even as unemployment has gone up by however many tens of millions it is. And the biggest part of that drive is you know, data, big tech, uh, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, all of this lot, because this has just been an absolute bonanza for them. Uh, and that isn't going to change. That is now going to be increasing increasingly permanent part of all of our lives, I think. There was a brief, I'm going to try and get this statistic right, and I, and I think it's actually, unfortunately, doesn't apply anymore. But there was a brief period at the end of April or so where shares in Zoom were worth more than every single US airline put together. Wow. Amazing. Um, well, I can see why, because Skype is rubbish. Um, <laughs> Skype have ruined their own platform. The one, uh, trying to look for some green shoots or, you know, or maybe based on, my you know my middle class mates on instagram is it not possible that you know as a response to these you know global supply chain issues or with with food supply chain issues that small producers are actually undergo a bit of a renaissance you know with people buying you know local and green grocers and stuff like stuff like that people getting produce from local farms which is you know is, which is what should have been happening for the environment anyway you know like obviously we shouldn't be shipping food miles and miles and miles around around the world is that not i mean this, this is we'll get into what should happen in a bit but well i think look i think you're right i think it is happening it was quite striking particularly um particularly in london but i think i'm guessing it's going to apply to any large city although i've only sort of seen this anecdotally is that you know when large supermarkets were running out of food smaller shops were still well stocked yeah 
basically because they had a different inventory model, different supply chains. Uh, and, and what you, you know, if you pick up the Financial Times or the Economist or whatever, not just agriculture, but all the talk around manufacturing is how to, how to shrink supply chains. Uh, and there was already, you mentioned reshoring, there was already a bit of a move, quite a lot of a move actually, to get manufacturing out of, you know, this kind of classic model of go to the cheapest producer you can yeah. and start to move it back to some actually relatively high labour cost locations. Um, because because of two factors. One was one was actually increases in labour costs in some otherwise what were historically very cheap places. I mean, the figures in China are quite dramatic. If you go and look mm. at the, uh, the the south of China near Hong Kong, Shenzhen, um, average manufacturing wages there per hour are not far off what they are in average manufacturing wages in like Portugal or Greece. Mm. And that's the point at which your cost advantage is really yeah. like disappears. There's not much, yeah, not much point trying to chase after it. The other bit is just the, the way manufacturing has changed to produce more and more complicated, very variegated goods. And there's the big advantage to trying to locate nearer to where markets are. So that was happening already. If you throw this thing on top where it's actually like there is a big risk to running a long supply chain, yeah. right, which is the risk of pandemics. By the way, the number of epidemics and pandemics is increasing. Yeah. directly related to environmental destruction. Yeah. This is something that is going to happen more often. If you're trying to pull all of those supply chains back in, you're going to look for, you know, basic working out the number of, ma- number of manufacturing jobs and things over here. I mean, looking sort of the medium term, probably world trade isn't going to recover right, quite as much. And certainly things like services trade, business services, that sort of thing, international travel for business is right down. Yeah. And potentially a load of those services go really expensive because you have to build in all this security because a lot of them just involve moving people around. That's going to make manufacturing relatively cheaper. So it'll be a big swing, potentially, towards sort of domestic manufacturing and trying to produce things here. You, you mentioned what we should do. This could, you can do a sort of positive, uh, try to write some stuff about this. You can do a positive version of this where you can actually have relatively small scale, low environmental impact manufacturing uh, that creates lots of decent jobs that starts to provide, you know, elements of what you want to get to in a, a low, low environmental impact economy, a circular economy. And you can start to be serious about making that work somewhere like Britain, even where you know, wages are quite high and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. To illustrate the, as you said, that how convoluted modern supply chains are, you wrote a bit about that, um, how KFC ran out of chicken just yeah. because there was a, a car crash in like <laughs> yeah. on the motorway. So they ran out because their supply chains were so, um, delicate, well, almost. so ridiculous and delicate and fragile to these sorts of things. Well, it's just, it's just such a ridiculous... Yeah. <laughs> thing to happen um we have talked about it people are talking up the, the idea of um, we're going to go straight into a recovery mm-hmm. i can't remember you said but they said there's going to be this like you know v-shape or whatever you know uh, 2021 is going to be like growth and you said that's not going to happen yeah i don't think there's a chance to be honest with you um i think look, if we move out of lockdown there's a couple of things here one one is sort of best case scenarios we can move out of lock best plausible case scenario mm. there are sort of fantasy versions of what might happen, but, but I think we'll, let's try and ignore those. The best sort of plausible case scenario is we move out of lockdown uh, and there is a fairly rapid rebound because things like the furlough scheme, the assistance paid to companies has actually sort of left everything, as I said, preserved in aspects. All you have to do is kind of restart it. Yeah, It's not like there's been loads of bankruptcies, all of that's yeah. fine, everybody's still employed, so you just kind of restart the economy. You get you get a recovery at that point. That's, that's what a V-shaped recovery looks like. Also kicking in, I mean, it's back to the different experiences during the during this part of the crisis. There's a lot of people saving. I mean, the, the rates at which people are paying down the credit cards is, is the highest yeah. it's ever been, right? So there's a lot yeah, of people I, out there I, saving. <laughs> so so if we if we start to reopen the economy, that means a lot of people with potentially cash to spend. 
you know, they've got room in their credit card, they built up some savings, they're going to go and spend. So, okay, that's that's could be a V-shaped recovery. Um, the bits that work against that are, first of all, I just don't think we're not going to be able to turn a key and get everybody out of lockdown straight away, right? Unless a vaccine turns up and it's immediately effective and it can be trusted and we can roll it out straight away, this isn't going to happen. What we're actually going to see is a fairly messy process of what we're seeing, which is the government's trying to move different parts of the economy at different speeds. So everything's a bit yeah. confused over there. Uh, whilst at the same time trying to wind back on the assistance it's handing out and therefore risking bankruptcies and unemployment and the rest of it. So so just the, the sort of overhang uh, impact of lots of debt has been built up, some people are saving, lots of people building up debt, that starts to drag back the economy. The complications of trying to get out of lockdown where you can't just flick your fingers and everybody's back to work, like we're going to have to try and move bits of the economy at different speeds, that's going to complicate things. Uh, looking at further ahead, to be absolutely honest with you, if you're having to build in lots of new controls uh, and regulations and technology to monitor people, to monitor their health, fundamentally, right? that's what we've got going forward. This is a big old cost of capitalism. It means growth is, broadly speaking, lower than you'd anticipate, for instance. So put all this together, you're looking at, something that starts to look much closer to the Great Depression in the 1930s and some sort of fairly rapid rebound recession like the 1990s. Yeah, this, this has very long-term impacts. Took in some of the long-term health impacts as well, which aren't really well understood yet. Obviously, we're only just into this crisis. Yeah, there, there could be very large numbers of people with fairly serious problems emerging as a result of this first wave. It's another cost. It's another thing that means your economy doesn't just get back to how it was before, to, to be blunt about it. Do you think... I mean, because a lot of people were saying there was a crisis on the horizon anyway, you know, prior to the prior to COVID. Um, do you think that's been affected or is it just on a world scale or do you think that's going to be accelerated? Well, it's, it's I mean, the, the, the particularly with sort of the financial part of that. Um, what you've noticed, the Bank of England did this, basically every other central bank did this, uh, very, every other, all the big central banks did this very, very rapidly, right at the start of the crisis, probably having learned from last time round, which is just immediately go, whatever it takes, straight away. Like, massive increase in quantitative easing, uh, an offer to government from the Bank of England that they got, it's basically an overdraft facility, it's called the Ways and Means Facility with government, which they can open and allow government just to borrow money straight from the Bank of England. In effect, the Bank of England at that point is printing money to hand over to the government to pay for its spending. All that was there, a whole bunch of other supports uh, put in place. So just flood the financial system with liquidity and promises of liquidity to try and keep the show on the road. And, and that, so far, at least in the developed world, has done enough to sort of drown out these incipient bits of crises that, that would have been elsewhere. The problem you're up against is, is it's basically this. The fundamental of this crisis is not a financial crisis. This, this is hugely bigger than 2008 to 9. Frankly, it's bigger than the Great Depression. The reason it's bigger is because most crises we're used to start in the financial system. Great financial crisis, 2008 to 9, yeah. starts in the financial system and then turns into a crisis of the real economy. Right? Basically, you know, the collateralized debt obligations blow yeah. up in US banks. It spreads everywhere uh, throughout the rest of the world. Banks here also have problems. That then turns into loads of people losing their job and facing wage cuts, right? Crisis of the real economy. As a result of the financial crisis, this time around, it's a crisis of the real economy because we've had to like, stop loads of people working, get them sitting in their homes to preserve human life, right, effectively, and to avoid a far worse crisis somewhere down the line. Um, that then turns into a financial crisis. And part of that financial crisis is the build-up of debt. And the, there is a point at which, even with central banks promising all this extra money, 
it is, it is not necessarily enough to flood the entire system and cover every single eventuality, for instance. So you might still see some blow-ups of financial crisis happening. Um, if it does happen, more likely candidates are, are a sort of return to the debt crisis in the, in the developing world. That you, suddenly... Uh, on. I was say, uh, you mentioned before, like, you know, um, now there's kind of forcing people to have different attitudes towards spending and that a lot of people are saving. And um, I guess the, the death of the high street has been something that's been floating around for years. And I think perhaps similar to like um, Reliance and Oil, this crisis has brought like both of those uh, to its, its natural end a bit sooner than what yep. would have been. And I was just wondering, do you think that I have like, um, I guess, for an individual point of view, people will kind of put more emphasis on things rather than like say spending as like uh, a leisure activity? You know, and how that affect, I suppose, recovery. I, I think. I mean, this is this is where it's going to get probably quite weird if we're trying to move out of it. And I can see that this this is something that would appeal to Boris Johnson, right? You all get out there and spend. I mean, George Bush did it after September the 11th. I can't remember his exact phrase. It's basically like everybody should just get out there and carry on spending. Now, the the, the challenge you got here is there's a whole load of expenditures that people used to make that are probably not going to be very keen on for some period of time. How many people will want to go to a crowded pub? Right. <laughs> now definitely not but in three months time it's probably like there's a serious issue here there's a serious issue with it. i mean shops various sorts are supposed to be opening on monday coming up uh i, I will see how people react there'll be some people who'll be like straight off shopping a whole load of people won't so i think just in terms of consumer spending i think it's actually still going to be quite restrained um but if we have to then build in place lots of measures that frankly make shopping in the high street less pleasant than it, than it used to be in various ways uh, this is not going to be good for various high street retailers. It's really not good for, for pubs to not be able to open and have people around, right? That means, exactly as you say, the question of what do we do with our high streets, which was already becoming very, very apparent because people aren't shopping in the ways they're used to, uh, comes right up front and centre. There are smart answers to this and the stupid answers to this. The smarter answers are basically like, well, we have to repurpose our high streets. Mm. I mean, I, I think there's, there's probably a general sense of... of uh, a deeper appreciation of public spaces, particularly in cities and towns, as a result of this, right? Because you know, it's, it's a bit like a whole lot of things or like places we used to go to, we can't go to. So it, lots of people have just been lurking around the park when they've been allowed to, that kind of thing, right? Uh, and, and high streets won't look the same coming out of this as they used to because, frankly, I think a lot of shops were closed down and they won't be able to recover properly. So what are we going to do with all this empty space? We should treat it as a public space in some form. You know, we should repurpose some of these shops. There should be schemes in place to try and do this. Local councils should be trying to make this happen where possible, where it's compatible with social distancing, where you can do this. Um, I mean, yeah, it's Glasgow, I think. Glasgow City Council's got a sort of peppercorn rent arrangement for artists and creative people to like take over old shops and properties and turn them into something else. There's a few places doing this already. So we'll have different high streets, but they could actually be better high streets. They could be more sort of public space-focused high streets rather than, you know, Slightly dubious temples to consumerism. The Welsh government are uh, being pressured at the moment to save, step in to save Debenhams, I think. Um, which, I mean, I think was it was going to die anyway, wasn't it, yeah. Debenhams? Um, so there's all these, and there's, but there's going to be this narrative, like I think, particularly in places which are depressed already. You know, come on, save, save this, yeah. this company that provides jobs, and it's almost like this reluctance. I'd say, especially in Wales, to think about doing things differently because of the immediate political trade-off of of jobs you know the idea of people losing jobs in places which are already depressed warps the way governments well i mean you can you can do something about that 
Right, you, you don't, you don't, you can do both. Right, the 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 problem we've had, I mean, there's backwards and forwards about conditions. It's become very acute around airlines. I mean, airlines are right, without this crisis, we're going to have to wind back on, on air travel. Right, everybody knows this. The airlines yeah. won't want to admit this, but they know this. Um, that is a problem. That means that people potentially lose jobs and things. Like, there's a difficult yeah. process of transition here. Uh, the, the sensible thing to do. And there's a good proposal from the Institute of Public Policy Research. It's quite a sort of bare bones, fairly simple thing to implement. Is that, okay, you can bail places out because you want to preserve jobs in the first instance, but you can put conditions on it. And condition one, take airlines, is, um, you know, you don't sack people, like the 12,000, whatever it is, that BA, uh, BA sorry, was threatening. Uh, and second one is you can't really some plan for the next 10 years about how you decarbonize your industry. Third one, and I think this is important, is that the government takes an equity stake in those industries, yeah. which actually the, the Tories are talking about. Treasury is actually raising this. You know, the Financial Times is saying they're considering taking, this is part nationalising major parts of the economy that this Tory government is talking about doing. And the reason you do that is because it gives you, well, you get something back for your money guaranteed, right? Because the public own it, and it gives you a bit of clout in determining what, what the, the business does in the future. So, so you could devise a bailout for Debenhams that, that builds in some of those features, right? It's not like you just hand over the cash and keep everything as it is. You don't need to do that. Aston Martin is the other one, I think, which is, yeah. uh, you know, obviously the Welsh government has put a lot of money into it. Um, and as you said, one of, I mean, despite the fact we go on about it in this, in this show, I'm not obviously against state, the state supporting <laughs> useful businesses, but my problem has always been, as you said, there's never any... There are never any conditions. It's just, here you go, here's some money. But, I mean, we can get onto that in a minute when we go to the, the final bit, which is what should happen next. Just briefly, James, the EU, to me, like has got... I mean, it, it may well collapse. I mean, one of the chief medical scientists of the EU kind of went under the radar he like he stood down very publicly mm -hmm. didn't he said you know and he said there wasn't any there wasn't any cooperation on a european level in terms of research and response and so i actually think that you know this is probably the beginning of the end for the it may well be the beginning of the end for the eu but in terms of the deal because we've all forgotten about brexit mm. um for good reason um because we all wanted a, to that's what yeah. it's basic bloody <laughs> reason but there is a specter isn't there of um of you know like a, a US UK trade deal you know as yeah, you, yeah. you talked about it earlier like you know massive massively deregulated markets in the US sort of as you said the UK would be like a vassal state it would yeah. kind of be like NAFTA and the UK would be could potentially be you know become like Mexico and obviously that would benefit a number of like a, an extreme wing of the conservative party and and people maybe working in in certain sectors but for most people it would be like a hellscape yeah. um how do you how do you factor in, you know, the, the Brexit deal with what you think is going to happen next in the UK or what could happen next? I mean, it, it, it's, it's difficult because partly because it's not been spoken about, um, and partly because the government has gone extremely quiet on, on Brexit one way or the other. Boris Johnson, I'm pretty confident, hasn't said the word Brexit since you know, 31st of January uh, and quite deliberately so. Um, he's, he disappears for weeks on <laughs> weeks on it. Well, he was ill for most of it, wasn't he? Well, yeah, yeah. The fact he was ill probably, probably uh, had something to do with at least part of it. But otherwise, even before all this kicked off, it was just like it was just suddenly a thing that wasn't happening. It was just yeah. you know, we voted, we left. That's it. Um, that points towards incidentally, then probably asking for an extension and just trying to smooth the ride through. Uh, I, I always thought the No Deal stuff was not completely, but mostly a bit of a bluff quite a lot of a bluff actually because you're bluffing like the entire country and the eu um 
and th- there was never that much of a serious plan to actually drive up at it. There's there's a there's a sort of branch of, of quite committed Remainers which view this as a deeply ideological project, trying to force the transformation of all of Britain on the most sort of hardline Thatcherite basis going. There are some people who think that, but it's not the case that this passes for the entirety of what the government's doing. Um, and they'd prefer to get a deal than no deal, for instance. So that points towards them doing an extension, which is probably why they don't really want to talk about Brexit, because they know they're going to have to do this, because there's no way they get a deal with the EU uh, in that space of time. But if you don't get a deal with the EU, then you are in a no-deal situation. And that, by the way, as smart heads will realise, does not help you get your better deal with the US. It puts you in a weaker position. So my guess is that's where we are. This could prove to be completely wrong, and in fact, they'll just go, okay, we're in the middle of a pandemic and the economy's screwed anyway, may as well do no deal as well on top of it, because it has less impact relatively. If you really wanted to speculate about you know, slightly apocalyptic scenarios, then that'd be one version of it. But I, I suspect this will be manage this as much as possible into something that we don't have to worry about. Right, in terms of what's going to happen next or what should happen next, you authored a, a really good won't describe it a strategy document for Wales TUC back when you were at uh, New yeah. Economics Foundation, which I thought was brilliant. And in that, you actually say that you know Wales is uniquely vulnerable to crisis because we're so so dependent on what well, I think it was eight big foreign manuf- uh, manufacturers, you know, like Airbus, Ford, Tata. They're all obviously you know massively under threat. Airbus, you know, Ford is going despite the huge amounts of public money that being pumped into it. Airbus is under under threat. How do you see? I mean, how do you see the the Welsh economy um, being affected by this, particularly? And then following off that, you know, what could the Welsh government do to to move towards a better world? Because you know, unlike you know, we obviously we haven't got complete control over the levers of the economy. Um, although they're talking about getting like borrowing powers and things like that, but you know, within the within the limited levers that they do have, what would be the best possible um, response to this now? It's, it's, I mean, the problem is, the problem from that point of view is the, the limited levers that you have. I mean, there, are, there are some, there are parts where at this point in time, the Welsh economy is somewhat more insulated than other bits of the country. Uh, the biggest one is, is just public sector employment's a bit higher here. Mm. Right, so if you've got a government that says, well, we're just going to pay for this, then that's kind of protected that part uh, of, of what the economy's doing. The bit that's really exposed is, is, is the stuff I talked about all those years ago because it's still a great big exposure, which is like huge uh, multinational, uh, mostly in manufacturing. Wales has an unusually, relative to the rest of the UK, unusually high level of manufacturing employment still. Um, and that's a really, really big exposure to what happens in the rest of the world because this is produ- production for export right, in the main export out of Wales, most obviously would actually export out of the UK. Uh, so, and, and, you know, at least... One part of that is in one of the most or close to one of the most exposed industries out of anywhere in the world, which is Airbus and, and uh, aeroplane manufacture. But then Ford's, which is already winding down, there's, a couple of, there's still one other car plant, a big one, isn't there, somewhere? Some smaller ones. You mentioned Aston Martin things. It's Aston Martin, I think well, TVR, Ford. Um... Leaving that aside, there's, there's also Port Talbot still, which is then ciliary yeah. somewhere down the line. Um, so, so all that manufacturing is is amongst the first bits to take a hit, not least because a lot of the supply chains it relies on extend all the way into Asia, and therefore, mm-hmm. you know, in case you know, a factory in China goes down somewhere in near Wuhan, uh, is closed down, suddenly parts can't arrive for your 
engines being built in Romania, therefore you can't make cars in like Munich, you know. And there's similar sort of impacts that, that rattle all the way through uh, to Wales. So that was immediate. Looking a bit further ahead, you might say, and I didn't mention this, you, you might see that manufacturing is more potential to revive than a lot of service sectors. Right. So so if you can kind of mothball things, I mean this is what happened in two thousand eight. The Welsh government did have a scheme to it's like a furlough scheme on, on a plant-by-plant plant or in business-by-business business basis where you kind of paid for people to keep their jobs for a bit and then once the economy restarts, you go straight back. Mm. The furlough scheme is that applies to the whole country effectively or version of it. So you could, on an optimistic scenario, think, well, okay, manufacturing could be in a position if you can mothball things, not lose the people who work there, fire the thing up again, it could recover very rapidly. Uh, and potentially recover rapidly into into a somewhat reshaped world economy where manufacturing is relatively more heavily in demand. That could be an optimistic version of this. I, I wouldn't want to bet on anything like that happening because I wouldn't want to bet on the world economy being there for you to sell your manufactured goods into. It's a mm. bit. I, I don't, you know, the US economy looks absolutely done for for the foreseeable future, one way or the other. Uh, there will be bits of the world economy that are going to recover much more impressively, China being the most obvious one. But this is a different question to try and sell things into. So we'll see, and it's still much smaller than the US economy. Um, so if you're looking at what does the Welsh government do, it's 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 got to be a, a strategy here, and this ought to be what we're doing across the whole country. But if you take Wales in particular, it's got to be a strategy of something like localization and relatively smaller scale ownership, uh, and an industrial strategy, interventions by government as far as possible to make that happen. Um, and the reason you do this is because you, you build a more resilient economy. Instead of having this, what turns out to be a very, very fragile, overextended thing, overextended in terms of its financial flows that we saw in 2008, overextended in terms of its physical flows of actual stuff moving around, which is what we see now. You localize it and you bring everything on a smaller scale and you do this ideally, certainly for manufacturing, you're very you know, high technology. Uh, production. So this is 3D printing, digital production of various sorts, that kind of thing. Uh, and you tie some of that, I think, also into the, the need to decarbonise. You know, Wales has an immense uh, wind resource, which is being underused at this point in time. Um, you can turn these things quite easily into, relatively easily, with support into community ownership. You can generate you know, income for communities and generate jobs, that sort of thing. So, so that's in outline what a strategy looks like. Um, I think what we'll get is, is almost the exact opposite of that, which is a bit like the Tories in the 80s, right, where it's like Welsh Development Agency, they're compiling in, here's a load of you know, foreign direct investment to build this big new factory, here's a load of jobs, it's there for yeah. like two, three years, and then you know, the yeah, economy short, turns down a bit and it's fucked. So <laughs> that's, that's short, their model. Short-termism, just relentless short-termism. Um, and, you know, we probably go on about it a bit on this show, but, you know, the Lucas plan is, yeah. is an inch, it, it, I just, it, 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 it fries me that it's not, you know, politicians who are, you know, ostensibly progressive don't just read it and think, you know, it's it's so easy to repurpose manufacturing into, you know. Well, we demonstrated it. We, we've yeah, just demonstrated it. Demonstrate you can easily switch people from one thing to another. Right? Yeah, they're making PPE, you know, factories that make whatever have been used to make PPE, to make ventilators, things like that. You know, you could go, right, we're going to have a green, a green economy in Wales and we're going to use our manufacturing base yeah. to do it. But as you said, like, I think the instinct is always going to be um, more FDI because they can't, um, because what is m most important for them is a short term headline of, oh, we've bought a hundred jobs to run the Ken and Taff. You know, the small print is this is a, a branch plant, which is going to go in five years. Um, 
And they'll combine it. They'll combine it with free ports. They'll they'll set up free ports as these sort of low tax or no tax, uh, no regulation. You know, they might try and call them green free ports or something like this, but that's what it's going to be. So no tax, no unions, no regulation, low wages. Get all the foreign capital in, right. capital from overseas, and that, that's that's your lot. You know. Um, the one thing, I mean, you've obviously had a bit of a beef with the IFS um, in the past, uh, with good reason, because obviously their their intervention on the the Corbyn manifesto um, was ridiculous. And obviously, the Welsh government have now appointed Gordon Brown on the IFS. How do you think that bodes? For their radical build back. And, and the, IFS, the IFS have backed away. Everyone's backed away from saying let's do austerity, right? Uh, Paul Johnson fairly consistently says it's it's not going to happen. It's not something that should be done. Uh, he may change his mind somewhere down the line, but he, he seems to have walked away from that. The IFS seems to be getting a sense of uh, of macroeconomics, right? It, it's a, it's a microeconomic think tank that mm. for some reason gets to talk about government debt, uh, which means it just ignores. It tends to say. Government debt is bad, therefore repay it, and doesn't really have this kind of institutional understanding, as far as I can tell, that this impacts the rest of the entire economy. They, they started at the last election to sort of build some of this into their thinking, like explicitly, but it's not really there yet. But Paul Johnson during this crisis has not been somebody arguing for austerity. In the case of Gordon Brown, I mean, you, you can criticise, and we did earlier, some of the like interventions that were made, but actually he did a lot. In, in the headline stuff, he did basically the right things in 2008. There are far worse people you could get in to advise the Welsh government. Um, that wouldn't be better people free- as well. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. I'm being I'm being kind of yeah very diplomatic. That's a word. Diplomatic about it, um, and, and we'll see what he comes up with. I mean, what he said during this crisis has not been ridiculous or completely like out of line. And I think he's someone who himself has come to question a lot of neoliberal dogmas in the last 10 years, let's say that. So he might bring something to it, but I think the one to watch out for is um, getting too much towards that sort of Welsh development agency model, right? that bit where Wales could be a really low-cost producer and that's what we're going to do. I kind of hope, given who's in government in Wales, that isn't going to be where you end up, but the pressure from government will be in that direction. Unfortunately, I mean, this is mini-analysis, but unfortunately what I think has happened is that the last however many years in Wales and, and Mark Drakeford's tenure has showed is that it doesn't really matter who is the person at the top because under Carwin Jones, you know, the CBI and other business interests were integrated into government to such a massive extent that that logic you talked about with the, the FDI stuff has just become completely ingrained. And, you know, Mark Drakeford, for all his, you know, socialist credentials, has been, you know, his continuity really. So that, I mean, until you overhaul the Welsh government and the people who are in, involved in it, I don't think anything's going to change. But anyway, is there any, I mean, thanks so much for coming on, James, because we've we have right. absolutely covered everything. Is there anything that you would like to add or is, uh, as is custom, is there anything you would, anyone you'd like to start a beef with or is there anyone <laughs> you'd like to, um, anyone you'd like to give a shout out to? Oh God, I should have thought of this beforehand. Um, who, who do I give a shout out to? Oh, it's, it's better to give a shout out than to try and start beef. I think I think there's been a bit of a, there's a bit of a beef issue at the minute. Uh, you may have noticed <laughs> on the left. I think everybody's too busy setting up kind of circular firing squads, and it's not necessarily uh, where you want to be. Um, but you know, there's there's all sorts of people doing good work out there. But I am failing to think of anybody at this point in time. <laughs> There's good publications and there's, there's lots of sort of activity there. Apart from, yourself, to... but apart from yourself, um, 
and right, you'd be diplomatic about Gordon Brown. If you had to pick, you know, a dream advisor for the Welsh government, who would it be? I oh, that's a good question. I, I don't know whether it's, it's quite her sort of thing. Um, the uh, Catherine Pistol okay. is a uh, she, she's really a legal scholar, but has some really really good things to say in her book, The Code of Capital. Heat. Oh, this is a shout out. Is um, well worth a read because it, it gets into not so much how government can like make markets happen, how government can intervene to change what the economy does, but how government can change the parameters in which the economy operates, right? So in other words, it's a sort of description of how capital is created from a legal point of view. And if you rewrite the laws, you'll get different outcomes because capital will be created quite differently. And the Welsh government can't necessarily rewrite the laws, but I think a sort of creative thinking about how these things are applied and what you might do on the ground would be uh, useful at this point in time. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Um, Nathan, any shout-outs to me or any beefs? Um, just two shout outs. Uh, shout out to a book I'm reading called uh, Carbon Democracy by Timothy Mitchell, which is really interesting. James is shaking his head there. Yeah, it's class. Oh, nodding. And, um, oh, nodding, sorry. Nodding, not nodding. shaking his head. <laughs> James is moving his head. And um, Larry Elliott as well, who's a, a Guardian column, is, was class. And I did buy his book ages ago. I tried to read it. Didn't understand any of it, though. But uh, yeah. What about you, Dan? Shout outs, beefs? Um, I'm normally beefing with a new number of people on uh, on on Twitter. Um, that is the case at the moment. But in following James's sort of magnanimous uh, uh, <laughs> spirit, I'm just going to issue the normal uh, beef, and I'll just say shout out to all NHS workers and the family as usual. Um, right, James, thanks so much for coming on. Did you want? Do you want to talk about your book at all? Or no, it's all right. We'll keep it, keep it under wraps. Right. Thanks very much, man. See you later. All right. Cheers. Bye. Cheers, Al. Bye. Gentlemen, imagine being able to travel safely at incredibly fast speeds and not having to go to the stupid fart face airports. That sounds incredible, Mr. Garrison. It is incredible, Mr. Hant. And what makes it possible is its patented gyroscope design. Gentlemen, I give you it. Nice. Sleek. It gets over 300 miles to the gallon and is safely capable of speeds of over 200 miles per hour. Wow. Whoa. This will change everything. We're going to have to rethink cities. Now, it is easily operated using four flexi-grip handles. Two of them are on each side. Left side for throttle, right side for steering. The third flexi-grip is gently inserted into the anus to keep the driver in place. There we go. Now the final flexi grip is directly in front of the driver so that small switches can be operated with the mouth as such. Put the four together and we're ready to go. Oh my god! Look at it go! But the way it works, do you really think people will go through that to travel? Hey, it still beats what you go through at the airports. <laughs>